Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 100. It's March 31st, 2015. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at InvestableWealth.com. Well, in today's episode, this is going to be part two of answering listener questions. And these answers are pretty much a basic overview of what you need to know as a beginning investor or someone that wants to begin building your wealth using investment strategies. We cover a lot of ground in today's episode, so you're definitely not going to want to miss it. This is also something you might want to pass on to your friends through social media. We'll get started in just a second. I do want to comment on the way the stock market closed out today. This is obviously the end of first quarter. The markets looked like they were going to be up, but there was a negative reversal in all the indexes. The S&P was down almost 1%. Again, we're seeing a very, very volatile time. These last two and a half weeks in particular have been extremely volatile. The S&P yesterday had broken above its 50-day moving average for the first time in about three or four trading sessions. And then with today's reversal, it actually closed below its 50-day moving average. I bring this up because you know how I feel about the 50-day moving average. I think we're definitely on thin ice. The reversal today at the end of the quarter, in my opinion, was definitely a warning sign. Now, a lot of this could have to do with the fact that we're in a short week. The markets will be closed for Good Friday at the end of this week. And then, obviously, this is Easter vacation, so we're going to see less trading occurring this week. However, I will say, even though we saw less than average volume being traded in the S&P 500 today, the trading that took place today was actually more than has taken place over the two previous sessions. And those were days when we saw up days. So whenever you see more trading occurring in a down market, again, that's a bad sign. That's a sign that we might be on some thin ice or that there could be some turbulence ahead. I personally, when I saw the reversal taking place today um, with my own funds, I shorted the market. I shorted the S&P 500. Now, I'll be watching how this takes place over the next few days. I, I think what I'll end up doing with this trade is to just take advantage of maybe some selling that we're going to see going into Good Friday. And so I don't know if I'm going to hold my position beyond Thursday. Right now, my mindset is that, hey, I can maybe pick up a percent or so in profits and then close out for the long weekend. As you know, I'm a swing trader. I'm not a day trader. And although this isn't a day trade, it would be a three or four day trade. I generally don't trade that short term. However, when I saw that reversal taking place today, and then particularly when I knew that the market was going to close below its 50-day moving average on the end of a quarter, I thought, hey, this might be a good time to just come in and pick up a couple extra dollars, you know, just make a small profit. So we'll see how this thing all unwinds through the end of the week. If things really start to fall apart and we start moving closer to the 200-day moving average, which... Uh, the the, um, the convergence of the 50-day moving average and the 200-day moving average are getting pretty close. We're seeing it really tight. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if we do see the S&P 500 move back down to its 200-day moving average. And so if I see that unfolding this week, then obviously I'm going to hold my position. In fact, I could possibly even add to that position to take advantage of the downward trend. But like I say, I can't predict the future. I'm just going to wait and let the market tell me what's happening, and I'm going to invest accordingly. Well, hey, I also want to remind you that in yesterday's podcast, I mentioned seven books that I'll be giving away. I have three books that have been written by Bill O'Neill, uh, that William O'Neill, he's the founder of Investors Business Daily. That's over at Investors.com. I'm a big fan of his work. And then I'm also giving away four copies of Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Now, these Covey books are uh, are older. I, I bought them in a, a case lot kind of sale. Um, they sat in a warehouse probably for a long time. They are new books. The pages are a little yellowed, but they've never been read before. 
Covey's book is really a good read. It's it's a solid self-help book. If you haven't read it, I'd encourage you to do it. Um, if you want to be entered in this drawing, this is a, a way that I'm thanking the people that have left a review for me over at the iTunes uh, store. So if you've left a review at iTunes, all you need to do, and you want to participate in this drawing, all you need to do is get in touch with me at wellsteading.com. Let me know that you left a review and that you'd like to be entered into the drawing. And then if you have a preference, if you'd prefer to be in the investment books by Bill O'Neill, let me know that. Or if you want the Covey book, let me know that. If you just want to be in the general raffle for any of the books, that's fine as well. Again, this is just a way for me to show appreciation for those of you that have taken the time and, and the effort to go leave a review over in iTunes. If you haven't yet written a review over at iTunes, well, I'm going to keep this contest running until midnight Pacific time on April 15th. So that'll be happy tax day. So between now and then, you still have time to go over, leave a review for the Wellsteading podcast over at iTunes. And then again, let me know at wellsteading.com and I'll put you in the drawing for these free books. On the 16th of April, I'll have a random drawing. I'll determine who our seven winners are. I'll notify you by email. Then you can provide me your address, and I'll mail it to you free of charge. Well, hey, let's get on with our listener questions. Again, this is part two, and it looks like it's going to be of a three-part series, answering questions that I've received over at wellsteading.com. And the first question we're going to start out with today is about alternative investments. You know, rather than the stock market, should I invest in real estate? Should I buy houses and flip them? Should I buy houses and hold on to them and keep them for 20 years and rent them out? Should I buy timberland? Should I invest in small businesses in my area or private businesses in my community? Again, these are things I can't help you with specific information on, and it all depends on you. You know, should you be buying real estate and flipping houses? Well, I don't know. How good are you at fixing things up? Can you patch holes in drywall? How good are you at assessing value? Are you going to be able to go into a neighborhood and know that you're buying the right home and something that you can flip right away? If you can do all those things, if you have relationships with general contractors and you think you can make a profit on a house, hey, go ahead and try it. Go ahead and flip it. Same thing about real estate uh, for long-term investment. I knew a guy that is a multimillionaire. He's a barber. Yeah, you know, he cuts hair for a living. But the way he made his money was by buying homes. I don't know, he owns 25, 30 little kind of starter houses. He's bought them over the years. He fixes them up. He rents them out. He's a multimillionaire from doing that. But you know what? He's got to worry about when the roof has a leak in it and when the toilet's overflowing and all that kind of stuff. I don't want to deal with those issues, but he did, right? That was the way he wanted to pursue his wealth. So it all depends on what you want to do. Timber land, again, I know people that have, have bought wooded lands. And that, you know, it's a great way to hedge against inflation. It's a great way to pass on your wealth to, to other generations, you know, to leave it to your children or grandchildren. But don't think it isn't without risk. I mean, there's risk in the stock market. There's risk in the bond market. There's risk in real estate. There's risk in owning timberland. What if you own a hundred acres and, you know, it all burns down in a, in a wildfire? Those kind of things happen. You have to assess the risk. And then I would say more importantly than anything, and it's like when I talk to you about buying the home, it isn't so much whether you should pay off the mortgage or whether you should. It's about whether or not you can really afford the house. So when you're looking at these alternative investments, can you really afford them? If you're going into major league debt to buy all this real estate, well, yeah, that may work for three or four or seven years when things are going good. But if the market turns on you, are you going to be able to have the cash flow to be able to pay those mortgages and make the payments? Or are you going to end up going bankrupt? A lot of people go bankrupt. That's why we have boom and bust cycles. So I would tell you, you know, not necessarily not to go into debt, but if you go into debt, make sure it's manageable. Make sure you're going to have the cash flow to pay it off. As far as investing in, in uh, private businesses or small businesses in your area, 
Again, that's just like real estate. Do you have some opportunities? Do you know a guy that owns an auto body shop that he needs an extra $50,000 to expand his business and he wants to bring you in as an owner or he wants to borrow money from you or something like that? If you see that as an opportunity, go for it. I mean, if you're good with dealing with people, if you're good with assessing value, understanding someone's character, being able to know whether or not you're going to be able to get that money back, then, you know, that might be something you want to pursue. But remember, there's risk involved in that. Any of these investments, whether they're real estate or timber land or investing in a local small business, they're illiquid. You're not going to easily be able to get your money out of it. And the harder it is to get your money back, the more you should be getting compensated for that. So if you're putting $50,000 in real estate, that's one thing that's probably fairly liquid. But if you're putting $50,000 in some guy's small business, that's really illiquid. You know, that guy could, could defraud you. He could embezzle money from you. He could skip town. He could become hurt and become disabled, and the business could go under, and there could just be lawsuits. I mean, there's just a lot of things that could happen. Even if the people are, are honest and above board, it could be really hard to get your money back. So those are things you got to think about, and you got to make sure that you're compensated for them. Again, for me, hey, I'm kind of a lazy guy. I like investing in the stock market. I invest in large stocks that are very well capitalized. They have a lot of liquidity. Any given day of the week, I can get on my computer, I can push a couple buttons, and within seconds, I can get my money out of them. That's what I like. That's how I've built my wealth. Well, the one other thing I'll say about alternative investments, you always have to remember about diversification. If you've got all your money invested in small businesses in your community and then your community happens to be hit by, you know, an earthquake or a hurricane or a major business in the area closes or there's a major downturn in an industry like the oil industry. Remember what happened to Houston back in the early 80s? It went through a real economic slump. You know what happened to New Orleans after Katrina, right? If you have all your money invested in one local geographic area, you're not well diversified. If you have all your money in one type of real estate, you're not diversified, right? If you have all your money in that timberland and then there's a forest fire and all your trees burn up, you're not well diversified. So that's something you definitely want to think about. No matter what investment vehicle you take, you want to be looking at diversification. Now, in addition to questions, many of you also submit me articles. I appreciate those. I do read them. Some of them I'm, I'm familiar with. Some of them are, are, are popular type things that, that more than one of you send in to me. So I, I do appreciate the, that, though. If you do find an article you may think of interest, please go ahead and send it to me. But a lot of the questions I get around those articles are people are saying, well, hey, is this a good article or a bad article? Or, or people send in you know, two different articles. One will say, buy gold. The other one will say sell gold, and they'll be like, well, which one's right? They're both written by experts. That's something you have to remember about the media. The media isn't in business to provide you with news and information. The media is in business to make money. And so whenever you see a TV show or whenever you read something in a print media or on the Internet, many cases they'll, they'll offer you two sides of the story just so they can get you to you know to click on either one or to to watch either show. If you're a pessimist, they're going to sell you on the fact that the market's going to fall apart. If you're an optimist, they're going to try and sell you on the concept that the market is going to be going on to new highs. They really don't care either way. They just want to be able to sell advertisements, and so they want your eyeballs on their website or on their TV show. That's why they're always portraying things as either black or white. So when it comes to the media, go back and listen to my previous episodes. Go back and listen to some of these first 10 episodes of the podcast where I believe it's Wealth Building Principle number 8, the 8th episode of this podcast where I talk about propaganda and seeing how the media manipulates you. Um, take it all with a grain of salt. As you'll always hear me say in this podcast, 
What I look at is price and volume. I don't look at what people say. I look at what's actually happening. And the best way to understand what's happening in the marketplace is to look at a stock or look at an index. Look at its price. Is that price going up? Is that price going down? And then look at the volume. Look at the number of shares that are being traded every day or every week or every month. That's not subjective. That's very objective. If people are telling you that gold's going to crash, but you're looking at a chart of gold and every day the price of gold is going up and every day more people are buying it, then I would tell you that the likelihood is that it's going to keep going up, at least keep going up for another couple of days or so. Those are things that you're going to determine by looking at the charts, not by what you read in the press. And when you get good at reading charts and good at identifying trends, you really get a good laugh out of the things that are played out in the media. Because, I mean, last year, for example, I read so many articles and heard so many people that were talking about the dollar is going to crash, you know, America is going to go bankrupt, Russia and China and you know, Saudi Arabia, they're all moving away from the U.S. dollar and the petrocurrency and the dollar's not going to be the reserve currency and on and on and on. And, and the whole time this is going on, you know, the dollar's appreciated something like 22% in the last 12 months. So again, don't listen to what they say. Watch what the markets are actually doing. Now, a lot of people, particularly older people, have asked me about how do you get good yields? I mean, these are people that remember the 70s and the 80s where you could get interest payments that were double digits. You know, you could go down to your bank and get a CD and it was paying like 13%. Well, I don't know if those days are ever going to come back, but they're certainly not here now. A risk-free investment would be a 10-year treasury bond. It's only paying about 2%. If someone's paying you substantially more than that, then you need to be really careful because there obviously must be a lot of risk involved in that. That's what we call high-yield corporate bonds or junk bonds. Be very cautious. The reason they're paying you such a high interest rate, because obviously there must be a risk of a high default rate, or else they would be borrowing that money from somebody else at a lower interest rate. So just watch that. I mean, if you're getting more than much more than around a you know a two percent rate, ask yourself why. Why are these people paying you that much? We are currently in a bond bubble right now. Interest rates are way too low based on the excessive amount of debt that's out there. And this is not just debt in the United States. This is this is debt globally. I assume this is going to pop, but I don't know. You look at a country like Japan, they've been in this similar kind of bond bubble for 25 years now. They keep being able to roll over their debt and borrow more and more. They're 200 and some percent of their GDP in debt. Their interest rates are extremely low. It's one of those things where it can't go on forever. But again, Japan's been doing it for 25 years. I don't know how much longer the global economy can do it. So we'll just have to wait and see how long these interest rates stay this low. Our 10-year interest rates right now should be at about 4 or 5%, and they're at 2 So there's a disconnect between what the market's offering and what, in theory, they should be offering. Again, that can't last forever, but can it last 25 years? Well, it has in Japan, so we'll just have to wait and see. As far as interest rates, too, a lot of people have asked me, you know, where do you park your emergency money? Say, hey, I've got $5,000, $10,000, $20,000 saved up. I've got it in my bank account or my credit union, and I'm getting, you know, 0.005 interest rate on it. Where can I get a better interest rate? My answer to that is probably nowhere. Again, we're just in a very low interest rate environment. What I would say is shop around. Your money is protected through FDIC insurance. So, you know, look at the, the limits that you're going to be offered on FDIC insurance. Look at your local credit union. Look at banks on the Internet. As long as the FDIC insurance is in place, bottom line is, if you know, if you've got $5,000 in a local credit union, if it's got FDIC insurance and they go bankrupt, you're going to get that money back. It may take two or three months or whatever, five, six months, but you are going to get your money back. 
So I would just look for either the local bank or credit union in your area that's paying the most amount of money, or if you want to go on the internet, use an internet bank. Again, as long as they've got the insurance in place and you're not exceeding the insurance limit, don't really worry about it. Again, I wouldn't sweat this. Most of you are not talking about having a million dollars in your emergency fund, so it's really just not worth the effort. I mean, think about it. Let's just say you have $20,000 in your emergency fund. Now, the bank you're in is probably not paying you a higher interest rate, but you're probably just not going to find one anywhere else either. So even if you could in increase that interest rate by 1%, which I think is probably unlikely, but let's just say you could do that. Well, on $20,000, 1% is $200. By the time you research all the banks and go around to the effort to find out where you're going to get that extra 1%, you're only talking about $200. You know, how much is your time worth? Also think in terms of this is that money is for an emergency fund. You want it to be very liquid. You want it to be available within 24 hours so that if you fall down and break your hip or you have to go to the emergency room or you wreck your car or the roof blows off your house or whatever, you know, you lose your job. You want to be able to get to that money immediately. And so when you think about it, it's really in self-insurance, right? So you know that when you go to an insurance company, you buy life insurance, they charge you a premium on the policy. Well, you can think about that $200 that you're losing um, on an interest payment on your $20,000. Just think of that in terms of that's the premium that you're having to give up to keep that money in cash, to keep it liquid. That's like an insurance policy premium. At the end of the day, if you ever need that money, if it's ever an emergency, it'll be money well spent. That $200 will be an insignificant expense if there's a catastrophe and you need to get to that money quick. So, you know, don't be penny wise and pound foolish. Another question I get quite a bit is about moving averages. Obviously, if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you know I'm always talking about 10-day moving average, 50-day moving average, 200-day moving average. In my trading, I use some things that sometimes are a little more sophisticated than that. I might use some different types of algorithms or I might use exponential moving averages. But the bottom line is, is that everything is really based off of that concept of the moving average. And like the 10-day, the 50-day, the 200-day, those are the most common. That's why I talk about them so much in this podcast. Everybody has their own little way of doing it. You know, some people are going to use a 13 and a half day or some people are going to use some kind of accelerated accumulation distribution, exponential relative moving average. I mean, you know, particularly when you get into people that have hedge funds and people that are using proprietary systems, they're going to come up with all these fancy bells and whistles. But the bottom line is it's still very similar to what you would find in a 10 day, a 50 day, a 200 day moving average. So I, again, wouldn't really sweat that. If you're just an average individual investor, stick with the basics, stick with simple things. A 10-day moving average, and when we're talking about these uh, daily moving averages, we're talking trading days. So the market is open generally five days a week. A 10-day moving average would give you the moving average price, the average price over a two-week period, right? There's five days a week, it's stocks are traded, so two weeks would be 10 days, that's a 10-day moving average. A 50-day moving average would give you the trading average over about a two-and-a-half-month period, right? Because there's 20 trading days in a month. Now, earnings come out every three months. So a 50-day moving average gives you that, you know, something that's pretty close to that three-month cycle for when earnings are coming out. A 200-day moving average, well, there's about 220 trading days in a year. So a 200-day trading average is pretty much going to give you a yearly average. 
So there's no magic in those numbers. That's just where they come from. If you want to use something, you know, a little more than that or a little less than that, it doesn't matter as long as you're consistent. Remember, what works for you is what works for you. You want to develop that system. You want to refine that system. You want to make it better for you. Now, if you use that on a spreadsheet or if you go to a, a website, you know, any of the grafting websites online, Yahoo Finance, Google Finance, Big Charts, FinViz, Investors Business Daily, I mean, all these places will produce charts for you for the indexes as well as for individual stocks. And many of them will allow you to either get the standard, you know, 50-day or 200-day moving average, or they'll actually let you go in and put in the, whatever type of moving average you want. If you want to get a 13-day moving average, you can do that. You can also build your own spreadsheet in Excel. That's, that's what I like to do. It all depends on your skill level and how much detail you want. If you just want to find a chart that shows a 50-day and a 200-day moving average with no effort on your part, go to Investors.com. That's the Investors Business Daily website. You'll see it on all the charts that you'll click on their website. I'd remind you again, I've said this before. Remember, I started investing 30 years ago. That's long before there was an Internet. And that's in the days when, when personal computers were just coming out. They were still really expensive. The, the software was rudimentary. Um, you, you didn't have the discount broker services that you have today. I started developing my charting and my moving averages and the things that, that I did with picking stocks with, uh, you know, a pencil and graph paper and a straight edge and the Sunday paper. I would take the closing prices from the Sunday paper, the weekly closing prices from the Sunday paper, or I would uh, take a publication like Value Line. I'd transfer those numbers onto the graph paper, I'd plot them out, I'd use my straight edge to draw the line, and that's how I started in the stock market, that's how I started making money in the stock market, and I would tell you over those next 20 years, you know, as I built my wealth, as I made my first million, even though I obviously upgraded to, to personal computers and spreadsheets and Excel and all those kind of things, the methodology wasn't that much different than what I did when I was just using graph paper and a straight edge. So you don't have to get fancy with all this stuff. You just have to have a system that helps you identify trends and patterns. Now I'm going to come back on another question and talk a little bit more about these uh, moving averages when we talk about indexes and exchange-traded funds and that. But we'll get to that in, in uh, just a couple more questions here. So let's move on to another one. This isn't a question, but this is something I wanted to cover. One of the listeners, uh, his name was Bob. His last name begins with A. Bob sent me an email about an article that talked about investor knowledge. And this was kind of an IQ test. It talked about, it was really one of these things that's remarkable. You almost think that it's a hoax, but if you, if you research it, you find that it's really true. The, the, the one that Bob sent me was something like they asked, they asked, uh, college educated people these three questions and something like, you know, 60 or 80% of them couldn't get it right. And these were really simple things like if you were getting 2% interest on $100 over a three year period, how much money would you have? You know, would it be more than $100 or less than $100? Just like simple questions like that, that, that supposedly college graduates couldn't figure out. Um, it makes you really understand the financial ignorance, the financial Ill illiteracy that's out there. And it causes you to ask that chicken and egg question of, you know, do smart people become wealthy because they're smart or do wealthy people become smart because they were wealthy and they had the ability to, you know, get the education to become smart? Here's the bottom line on all this. It gets back to IQ, right? There's different types of, of IQ. There's different types of an intelligent quotient. Some people are really good with music, right? They have a very high musical IQ. They can play musical instruments. They can sing. They have the ability to identify pitch. They have rhythm. Other people are really good at calculus. Um, other people are really good working with their hands. Well, it's the same way with building wealth. 
Some people are really good at investing in the stock market. Some people are really good with investing in real estate. Some people are just really good at earning a lot of money and saving it. Remember the example I used before about the two kids that are growing up in Des Moines, Iowa. One kid becomes a plumber. One kid goes to work for a corporation. At the end of 20 years, the plumber is the guy that's financially independent. It had to do with savings rates, discipline, being able to earn a whole lot more than you spend. So as far as you know, financial ignorance, I would just say this. Most people are miserably misinformed, and the good news in all that is it makes it easier on those of us that are paying attention. So, hey, don't get discouraged when you see all those stupid people. It's just providing you with a competitive advantage, so take advantage of the situation. Another common question I get is about the buy and hold strategies or people that want to do like permanent portfolios. Uh, one of the listeners named Anthony, he asked me about the gone fishing portfolio. That's one I hadn't heard of that term before, but it's pretty much similar to what you would call a permanent portfolio. Um, really, these are all variations of buy and hold. If you've listened to this podcast, you know that I'm not really a big proponent of that. And it isn't that I don't think that it works over the long term. I just think that if you're more proactive, you have that much better of a chance of building more wealth. Because if you're able to identify a downward trend in the marketplace, then why not get out? Why sit there, put up with all the pain? For example, in 2008, why lose 48% of your money in a permanent portfolio when you could have simply gotten out and, and bought back in at a later date? Now, the argument for having a permanent portfolio or a buy and hold strategy is that the average Joe just can't determine these patterns. They can't figure that out. And so they'll, they'll, uh, you know, they'll sell at the bottom and buy at the top. Well, if you're the average Joe, then, then stick with buy and hold. Just put your money in something, leave it there for 40 years and, you know, hope it's there when you retire. But I'm not the average Joe. I've educated myself. I've taught myself how to identify these trends. And that's how I've built my wealth. Now, the argument around things like a permanent portfolio, and I think that term was coined by a man named Harry Brown. And again, I don't necessarily disagree with his logic. And I think it's similar to the portfolio that Anthony was talking about with the gone fishing portfolio. And that's where you, you basically have diversification. You're splitting up your assets into four or five categories that are potentially not correlated so that if, you know, if the U.S. stock market crashes, well, you have international stocks. And if international stock markets crashes, well, you have gold. And if gold crashes, well, you have bonds, right? And, and again, there's nothing really wrong with that strategy, but it gets back to, well, what if you can discern patterns? Wouldn't it make more sense to put a higher percentage of your portfolio in things that are moving up with the momentum and, and consequently taking out, out of the things that are moving down and to ride that out for a month or six months or a year? And then as that next asset class, you know, starts to move up, then move into that one. Now, again, if you're just the average Joe and you can't figure that out, well, then don't, you know, then that's not the trading method for you. But if you want to be above average, if you want to be the millionaire next door, if you want to be financially independent, then you either need to take the time to figure out how to do this stuff yourself or you need to hire somebody that's competent and can do it for you. For those of you that are naysayers and you, you believe in the permanent portfolio or you, you believe in buy and hold, I mean, just go back to 2008. Look at the four or five asset classes that you would be in in, in a permanent portfolio that supposedly gave you diversification. And from 2007 till about March of 2009, you will find that most of those performed very poorly. Now, they didn't all crash as much as 48% that we saw in the S&P 500, but things like the, the NASDAQ, it, it crashed even harder. Uh, for a while there, gold came down quite a bit. I think it was down 20, 30% or so in uh, mid-2008. Now, it eventually came back, 
But the point is, why ride it all the way down just to ride it back up when you could have sold it and then as it was coming back up, you could have bought it and made more money. Let me just illustrate this point. And this gets back to those moving averages that I'm always talking about. Go back to 2007, 2008, 2009, that period. Plot out a chart of gold, a chart of the S&P 500. Put in some moving averages. Put in just something very simple, like a 200-day moving average. If you would have sold the S&P and gold when it broke below its 200-day moving average, and then you would have bought back into those when they went above their 200-day moving average, then, and I don't have the chart in front of me, so I'm doing some of this by memory, but I'll say with some confidence here that you would have saved yourself a whole lot of loss because you wouldn't have lost that 48% on the way down in the S&P 500 or that 25 or 30% drop in gold. And at the same time, you would have made up even more than that on the way up because when gold broke above its 200-day moving average it didn't drop again until 2011 so you would have had about a three-year run on gold where it went up exponentially and at about that same time you could have sold it and you would have seen that the S&P 500 was breaking up above its 200-day moving average and you could have bought into the S&P 500 and if you'd have owned that from 2012 until today you'd have done very nicely for yourself so that's where I talk about just using these simple moving averages to determine overall trends and then investing in those trends accordingly. That's why I'm not a believer in buy and hold or permanent portfolios. I like to actively trade. And again, if it's something that you, you either don't feel comfortable doing yourself or you don't know how to do it yourself or you don't want to take the time to learn, then you need to find someone that'll do it for you. Otherwise, you're going to be stuck in that buy and hold mindset. And that isn't a horrible way to build wealth. It's just going to handicap you. You're just not going to build wealth as fast as if you actively trade. So as far as buy and holding, that takes us to another question that I get a lot of, and that's kind of like, what's the best index fund that I should buy? Or what's the best exchange-traded fund or mutual fund that I should buy? Or, you know, these are the four or five choices that I have in my 401k. You know, which of those should I invest in? Well, as I'm saying, these things are always moving. You know, the thing that performed the best over the last 12 months or over the last 24 months, it's likely not to perform the best over the next 12 months. Things are constantly rotating. And so one year you may find out that the S&P 500 does really well. And then the next year it's the Russell 2000. And then the next year it's international stocks. Or then the next year it's emerging markets. They don't always perform the best forever. I mean, international markets is a perfect example. Initially, when we went into the financial crisis in 2008, the international stocks didn't sell off as hard. But you know what? Since about 2012, the international stocks have done lousy particularly the emerging stocks. And so while maybe in 2007 and 2008, if you were in emerging stocks, you'd have done okay. If you'd have held on to those positions, you'd be worse off today than you would have been if you'd have just sold them and moved back into the S&P 500. So I can't tell you what's the one best index fund to buy or what's the one best exchange-traded fund to buy. As I've said many times, if I only had one fund I could buy, whether it was a mutual fund, exchange-traded fund, ETF, or whatever... I would buy something that invests in the S&P 500. That gives you diversification over 500 stocks. These are you know, pretty much the 500 blue chip best stocks in America. Through thick and thin, through good times and bad, overall over a period of 40 years or whatever, you're probably going to do just fine in the S&P 500. 
So if I only had one thing I could invest in, that's what I would invest in. If I only had one thing that I had that I could pay attention to, you know, even if I had other investment options, but if I didn't have time to, to pay attention to it, or if I could only, you know, swing trade in and out of one thing, it would be the S&P 500. So you can do that with an exchange traded fund like the SPY, that's Sierra Papa Yankee. SPY is the S&P 500 exchange traded fund. Vanguard offers a mutual fund that mimics the S&P 500. That's a very good one. It's a, a very reputable fund, very low cost. You know, Fidelity has their version, USAA or uh, American funds. You know, everybody has a version of the S&P 500. If I could only pick one investment vehicle, that would be the one that I would invest in. Now, again, though, since there are so many choices, since there are so many exchange traded funds, I can't tell you what's going to perform the best in 2015 or 2016 or 2017. That's why I'm constantly looking at the market every day. And I'll give you a little, a little, uh, peek behind the, the secret curtain here, the way I think every day, although I'm looking at many things every day, and I've been doing this for a number of decades, I'm looking at five things every day. And just as I said, if I only had one thing to invest in, it would be the S&P 500. Well, if I could only look at five sources of information, these are the five things that I'd look at. And I'm talking about, you know, if I, if I didn't ever read another newspaper, or I didn't ever look at another website to get any kind of information, if I just had these five sources of information, I think I could still be a successful investor because I gain most of my knowledge from looking at the interaction of these five things. Here's what they are, and they're not in any particular order. It's just these five things. That's the price of gold, the price of the U.S. dollar, the price of oil, the yield on interest rates, and then finally, the value of the S&P 500. Those are the five things I always look at, and quickly, let me explain to you why. Well, obviously, the price of oil tells you the, the cost of energy. Our whole economy, our whole world runs off of energy. So if I know what the price of oil is, I know comparatively what the price of energy is. If the price of energy goes up, that's going to drag on the economy. If the price of energy goes down, that's going to be a tailwind to the economy. So the price of energy is critical. The next thing is the yield on interest rates. And mostly I'm looking at the 10-year treasury, but I also look at shorter term rates. And I, I also tend to look at 20-year rates because they're, they're very easy to quantify. But I'm looking at interest rates because what is that? That's the cost of money. Okay, remember energy, the cost of oil told you how much energy costs. Well, the next thing the economy runs on besides energy is money. The economy runs on capital. If you have a business... You not only have to buy gasoline and electricity and things like that, that kind of energy to run your business, but you need capital to run your business. You have to buy trucks. You have to buy real estate. You have to buy inventory. You do all that with capital. So capital has a cost. The way you measure the cost of capital is with interest rates. And it's just so it's just like oil. When interest rates go up, that puts a drag on the economy. When interest rates go down, that's a tailwind to the economy. The next thing I'm looking at is the U.S. dollar. And when I say the U.S. dollar, I mean that the uh, the value of the U.S. dollar against the yen or against you know, a basket of currencies, the yen, the euro, the Australian dollar. And the reason I'm looking at that is it isn't telling me cost of the dollar. Remember, the cost of money is is in the interest rates. But what the value of the U.S. dollar does is in terms of exchange rates, what that's telling me is how the dollar is perceived against other global currencies. The value of the U.S. dollar based on those exchange rates against other currencies helps me understand inflation and it helps me understand where the economy is going in terms of the comparative and competitive advantage of the United States. If the U.S. dollar is strong, that means that imports 
are going to be cheap and exports are going to be expensive. And then it's the opposite if it's the other way around. That's very important to understand. The fourth thing I'm looking at is that price of gold. Now, this is kind of similar to the value of the U.S. dollar in terms of exchange rates. When I'm looking at the price of gold, gold is obviously priced in dollars. So, it's again, it's helping me understand how inflation is, is affecting the value of the U.S. dollar. It's helping me understand the fear factor built in to the economy because when, when there's a great deal of fear, people move into gold. It also helps me understand the cost of real goods. Now, it isn't an exact proxy for everything. It obviously isn't going to tell me the, the cost of real estate or the cost of these other things. But when I can look at the cost of gold and I can compare that to the cost of oil, that really helps me get an idea of, of where real assets are being priced. And then finally, I have those four things that are giving me an indicator of where the economy should be going. And then I compare all that to the S&P 500. So that was my, that was my fifth category, the S&P 500. So I look at those first four and I make a determination. I say, well, hey, based on these indicators, oil's down, the dollar's up, gold's flat, interest rates are steady. That means that we should be having a good economy. That means the S&P 500 should be uh, in an upward trend. Well, then I look at the S&P 500 and I look at it and it's not. Maybe it's in a downward trend or maybe it's flat. And then I say, well, there's something wrong here. And so then I go back and I dig deeper into the numbers. But those five things can basically tell me everything I need to know about the status and the trends in the market, and they can help me determine where I need to zero in and what things I need to look at to get a better understanding. So the reason I bring all this up is as you're looking at, you know, what's that one fund that you should be investing in in your 401k plan or, or which of the indexes should you be focusing on, you know, to, to put your investment money in? Well, look at those five things I just talked about. Look at the price of gold. Look at the price of oil. Look at interest rates. Look at the U.S. dollar as it's evaluated against other currencies. And then look at the S&P 500. See what those things are telling you. If gold and oil were going up, then maybe you should be investing in, in other types of commodities or in gold miners or in, or in oil companies. That also might be a, a good idea that the stock market is going to keep going up. The same thing with things like interest rates. Well, if interest rates are going higher, well, who makes money off of interest rates? Well, the banks do. The, the higher interest rates are, the more the banks can make money on the spread. So if interest rates are going up, well, then maybe you should be investing in financial companies. Try and determine a pattern or a direction or some kind of a trend based on those five things and then invest accordingly into the types of indexes or the funds that are available in your 401k. Well, I think this is a good place to wrap it up. I really believe that I've imparted a lot of good wisdom and information to you in this episode. It kind of worked out that it was episode 100 when we're answering listener questions, so it's a nice little anniversary, I guess. Uh, again, I, I think that what I talked about with those five areas that helped me determine trends and the things that I've mentioned about the 50-day moving average and the other things that were covered in today's episode, I think it's really important. I think these things are going to help you be a better trader and help you build your wealth. Again, you might want to share this episode with your friends on social media, so please do that. I just want to remind you that in this podcast, I'm always providing you with general information. It's for educational purposes only. I'm not providing specific recommendations or any type of specific advice, so keep that in mind as you make your investment decisions. And I look forward to seeing you back at our next episode where I'll wrap up the answers to listener questions and we'll close out this three-part series. As always, until our next episode, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best of returns.